بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وبارك وسلم. We are on سورة الصاد in سورة number thirty-eight and ayah number Thirty ردوها علي فطفق مصحا بالسوق والعناق. So here we have uh, two stories of Suleiman عليه الصلاة والسلام. These stories are mentioned in the ayat in brief and uh, there is some reference in hadith to the first one but there is very little reference in hadith to the second one but the first story there is al-jihad or the thoroughbred horses expensive horses yeah. Yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Suleiman a ruler and as with all rulers they have an army and part of the army is the cavalry and in the cavalry you are going to have horses and steeds that you raise and they would be thoroughbred as you know Horses come through a very specific genealogy, and so on. They are a creation of Allah, and that is very close to human beings. They are mentioned in hadith in so many different ways. What hadith, which is very, very common and popular, is al-khayl, al fi nawasiha al-khayr. That the horse goodness is tied to its forehead until the day of judgment. So the Prophet said, The khayl, the horse, is a magnificent animal of Allah. It brings down Allah's pleasure, and there's nothing except khair, goodness in the horse. You can see from this hadith also that uh, Islam has given tremendous importance to the horse to the degree that Abu Hanifa says you're not allowed to eat horse meat because of its honor and its nobility and so on. So anyway, raising horses and becoming fond of horses taking care of horses, uh, pruning horses become a major event 
and activity of rulers, of kings and anyone else who knows anything about how to raise horses and how to develop the cavalry and the military and so on. So, Suleiman Islam was no different. He was exceptionally fond of horses and every day there would be a parade of horses and he would inspect the horses with uh, diligence and with kindness and with affection. So here the Quran mentions, remember the time when these horses okay, were now presented in front of him. Asafinat al Jihad, those were prancing steeds, purebred, purebred steeds, and these are horses being presented, displayed in front of Suleiman to see which one is now going to be accommodated, included in uh, the cavalry, and which one is going to be rejected. Anyway, so he was engaged with this, and obviously there might have been a number of horses. 50, 60, 100, and uh, in that uh, he became consumed. Uh, he became so consumed that uh, he did not do his daily uh, regimen of dua, dhikr, and salat. Hmm. This is what the Quran says. فَقَالَ إِنِّي أَحْبَبْتُ حُبَّ الْخَيْرِ عَنْ ذِكْرِ رَبِّ he said that indeed I have given preference to the love of horses over the dhikr and remembrance of my Lord. Right. Meaning these were, uh, these were so many uses, uh, horses and I forgot to do my daily regimen of dhikr. Dhikri Rabbi is the dhikr that we mentioned in the story of Dawood that Dawood was engaged in Nafil Ibadah when the two people scaled his walls and stood in front of him and asked him to settle a dispute. That's the daily regimen for the Anbiya. So the Anbiya have daily regimens where they have now private time with them and Allah and they don't want to be disturbed at that time. So now, Sulaiman has set aside a daily regimen for the dhikr of Allah, and that was at the time after Asr, just before Maghrib. So, although there is some reference to saying that this perhaps was Salat al Asr, there's no confirmation of that uh, from any Sarih hadith. So, we say that this is most probably Nafil, that the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning that as Nafil. Because the previous ayah, innahu awwab, ayah number 30, that he was ever uh, penitent and ever returning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was an occasion when he did not come back to Allah with his dhikr. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing us that prophets have a standard of dhikr that is much higher and greater than the standard of other human beings and other Muslims and they, they hold themselves accountable for that period of time when they want to engage in dhikr. 
So this is why it's in the Ahbabtu, Hubb al Khair, that I have given preference to the love of these horses. The Quran uses the word Khair, goodness, to represent horses, uh, which is mentioned in another surah, Surah Al Adiyat, wa innahu li Hubb al Khair, la shadid, that the man is very, very severe about his love for Khair meaning wealth in general, and also horses in, uh, what do you call it, huh? specifically, because the greatest commodity for the Arab was either camels or horses, horses being much more than camels. That's why it's mentioned as khair, both in that ayah and this ayah to show that there is goodness in that wealth, because that wealth is pure, in of itself, as I mentioned, the animal is blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. حَتَّى تَوَارَتْ بِالْحِجَابِ حَتَّى تَوَارَتْ بِالْحِجَابِ Until the, the, the um, skies or the sun was now concealed by the barrier, referring to the sun's setting, if you want to go that way referring to the shams, the sun. Or if, the, if you're following this translation, that they were concealed in the seclusion of the stable, uh, which doesn't, you know, uh, appease us whatsoever. More about the sun hiding underneath the horizon and so on. So Sulaiman realized that he did not make time to make the dhikr of Allah as a nafil uh, engagement and he was super consumed with these horses and he then repented from that and came back to Allah to prove the ayah which I mentioned, ayah number 30, innahu awwab, he was ever penitent and always returning back to Allah or the dhikr of Allah, as was his father, Dawud al-Islam, constantly engaged with singing the praise of Allah, and reading, the reciting the zabur, and so on. Rudduha alayhi, bring it back to me. Return them to me, meaning return the animals to me. Fatafiqa masham bisuqi wal-anaq. And then he started to rub them, or groom them, بِالسُوقِ uh, striking their legs and out of uh, their, their, their necks and their legs. Yeah. Meaning that he did not want to blame the horses for this apparent uh, lapse in the dhikr of Allah. So he said, bring them back so I can tell them that I'm not upset with them. I'm not angry at them because the horses are also very, very sensitive. Yeah. Animals do become sensitive. As you know, yeah, we all go into that. Hmm. There'll be another rant. Hmm. But the Prophet ﷺ did say yeah, that uh, uh, in one hadith, one rewrite that the souls are now platoons. They line up in platoons. Our souls in the other world, before we came here, the world of spirits, 
we are arranged in formation as platoons and columns, like horses are. And, and uh, the arwah, they smell each other the way horses smell each other, and the horses narrate, uh, relate to each other by virtue of their smell. If they like each other's smell, uh, they will relate to each other, otherwise they won't. Uh, so we see uh, that the prophets gave a lot of importance to the horse, and these horses are very sensitive. The horses will feel that I am blaming them, but I'm not blaming them, I'm blaming myself for being over-consumed with uh, in, you know, observing them and grooming them and so on. So this is one story that the Qur'an presents to show that Sulaiman was not only devoted to the army or the cavalry and devoted to the state and devoted to life in general, but he was more devoted to the dhikr of Allah because he knew his life uh, revolved around how much dhikr of Allah and how he was connected to Allah through ibadah. So a prophet's mind and conscience and heart is always attached to Allah no matter what. Except that this was a preoccupation he needed to engage in and he did not blame the horses, he blamed himself also to show us that this is the adab that a Nabi has. He places everything uh, where it belongs. So he placed blame on himself and removed the blame from the animals as to show us that he was a man of authority, a man of compassion. So you can have compassion if you are in control of an army. So you don't have to be that uncouth and callous just because you have power. Uh, power should make you more compassionate, not less. And also power should make you more humble in front of Allah and less arrogant in front of Allah. I mean, that, that's the moral of the story here. This is the first story, which, as I said, is mentioned vaguely, uh, but uh, is not mentioned in detail at all. In Hadith, there's, there's some riwayat there, but it doesn't, uh, you know, convince us that they are authentic enough to say this is the actual tafsir of the ayah. There's other stories about Sallallahu that he wanted the sun to come back, so the sun came back, and then he did his salat al-asr, which is fine, you know, neither here or there. That's not really that authentic, so we won't go there. We'll stick with what the Qur'an has to offer in uh, principle. The second story is even more ambiguous. Way the Quran addresses issues and stories, so we have to find uh, the, the reason of revelation in the story. And there are some fantastic stories about the second story mentioned in the what we call the Israeliyat, okay, the Jewish traditions, and so or even the Christian traditions, taken from the Old Testament, and so on. So those stories are stories, basically, where there's no way to authenticate whether or not the Prophet said anything about the tafsir of this ayah. Because you're talking about revelation, revelation is understood by and through revelation, not by the mind. The mind may be used as a secondary tool to evaluate, but not as a primary tool. 
We do not do that in Sunni Islam. In other forms and sects you may do that. But in Sunni Islam, revelation is going to be understood by revelation. Since there is no authentic hadith about this ayah and its tafsir, we will say we will stop and not comment about it based on the stories that certain people may have narrated. So the second story is وَلَقَدْ فَتَنَّا سُلَيْمَانَ وَأَلْقَيْنَا عَلَىٰ كُرْسِيِّهِ جَسَدًا ثُمَّ That we tested Sulaiman and we threw upon his throne, his kursi, his throne, or his royal seat, jasadan, we threw a body. Then he repented and he came back and he realized Allah was testing him. Now, there is one slight reference in Bukhari, but it may or may not live up to the standard of tafsir. That is that Sulaiman wanted to consummate with his concubines. And he said that he will conceive, they will all conceive, okay, but none of them conceived uh, except for one, and the one that did conceive aborted the fetus. So the fetus came out, and that fetus is what is referenced here by the body. Okay. Now that's one possible, uh, but not plausible understanding of this eye. It's possible, but it doesn't sound too good because the word jasad would mean that it's a total body, not an incomplete body. Anyway, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we tested Sulaiman and we threw a body onto his throne. Uh, there are also other, other stories that uh, some people found out that Sulaiman ruled uh, because of his ring and they stole the ring and then they sat on the throne until Sulaiman uh, found his ring again and then he recaptured the throne after he found his ring. All right, fantastic, mashallah, alhamdulillah. <laughs> but that's about it. It's a fantastic story. It doesn't add up to the tafsir. The, 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 the standard of tafsir is much higher than having a fantastic story. So we don't go with that necessarily. We say that only Allah knows uh, what is mentioned or what is meant uh, by this uh, ayah or this word in this ayah called jasad. And that's plausible too, that Allah may reveal an ayah uh, about which we don't know the truth, and that is fine too. In our, in our paradigm, we don't mind saying we don't know. In our philosophy of reading the Quran, it's okay for us to say we don't know what it means. <laughs> it's perfectly fine, like all the letters in the beginning of the surahs, Alif, Lam, Mim, and all of these letters, we say very easily, we don't know what they mean. So it's fine to say that we don't know what a certain ayah means, or the exact precise meaning that we can conclusively say, this is the tafsir of this ayah. Uh, alam, there are so many things about the Quran we don't know, and that's the point, maybe, that Sulaiman was then tested by Allah, and uh, there was something that went wrong with his kursi, with his arsh, with his uh, throne, and then uh, he came back to Allah. Right. Anyway, so these are two stories. One story is uh, somewhat okay in the sense that we get an understanding from the ayah itself, 
that the story is about these horses and Suleiman not engaging in dhikr. The second story is a bit more ambiguous and we don't really know what the exact tafsir is. There are some explanations in the books of tafsir uh, which may or may not live up to the standards of tafsir. What is more important is the conclusion of both of these stories. What is the conclusion? What is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying to us about Suleiman? So if you remember in ayah 30, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the word وَوَهَبْنَا لِدَاوُودَ Suleiman. We gifted Dawood Suleiman as a gift, uh, as an heir. We made Suleiman an heir to Dawood, but he was given as a gift. So the word Wahaba is used there. <coughs> the word Wahaba, yeah, meaning to give and to grant as a divine favor. Yeah. Here now in this ayah, at the end of these two stories, Suleiman comes back to that same word, and this is where the tafsir now becomes conclusive. Suleiman said after realizing he was being tested, forgive me. As a rule, all prophets seek Allah's forgiveness. The Prophet said, I seek forgiveness from Allah hundred times a day. So it is not against the spirit of a Nabi, of a prophet to seek forgiveness from Allah. Even though they don't commit any sins, but the, the, the issue is how humble are they in front of Allah? The meaning of the previous word anab uh, and awab and so on. They always come back to Allah, refer themselves back to Allah that I'm engaged in something I should not be engaged in. So there, the uh, you know, the the testing of Suleiman and the throne uh, could be related to that also. Wallah alam. So Allah forgive me uh, for being put in this position of being tested. So Dawood was now tested. Right? So in the story of Dawood, the same word was used, Fatanna. Uh, uh, so Dawood assumed and believed that we were testing him. And here Sulaiman realizes, Fatanna Sulaiman, we tested Sulaiman. So Allah is testing these two rulers. Yeah, meaning just because you are a ruler and you have power and authority and military might and power and strength and all of that, doesn't mean to say that you will not be tested. Power is not a luxury that uh, precludes you from being tested by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Power is another reason for you to be tested. You're tested because of your power and through your power. And so on. So we see here, if you understand the wording of the Quran, which is what tafsir is all about. Tafsir is about understanding the words of the Quran, how they come together, what they mean when they are together, and what is the literal and the literary context in which the words come together, and what they mean when they're strung together. So here, in the story of Dawood, there is the test. And in the story of Suleiman, there's a test. And in the story of Dawood, he says, uh, He sought forgiveness from his Lord. And in this story, Suleiman says, 
Irfirli, forgive me. Say so they both realized they were being tested, and they both sought forgiveness. Yes, which is the way you should be when you're in power, that you don't assume you're above God. You must assume that you are a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, at the same time, you see Suleiman al-Islam's agenda. You see the uh, foresight of Suleiman al-Islam, and you see that Suleiman al-Islam wants to expand whatever Allah has given him as a ni'mah. Where Dawud al-Islam was content with what Allah gave him, Suleiman al-Islam went a step further. And then he uses, because he is a product of Hiba. Since Suleiman was given as a gift to Dawud, and Suleiman knew that, Suleiman knew and understood Allah is able to give more gifts. So he asked for everything. Give me everything. You've tested me and I sought forgiveness from you. Allah grant me kingdom. Not give me kingdom. Grant me. The word is give me kingdom as a gift. Grant me a kingdom. Yeah. Meaning that in, uh, as a demonstration of your authority on earth, make me an heir to your earth and the treasures of the earth, and make me such that I rule this earth in such a way that is not fitting for anyone after me. Give me a kingdom that is not fitting for Anyone after me, anyone who comes after me should not have the same kingdom that I have. So now he's obviously spreading, spreading out the hibah, the gift and grant from Allah in such a way that he's incorporating everything on earth uh, within his kingdom. So he wants this kingdom so that Allah is worshipped properly and correctly. So now in the Qur'an you have three people who are, uh, by default, for the lack of a better word, kings. One is Dawood, the other is Suleiman, and the third is Dhul Qarnayn. Dhul Qarnayn is not a Nabi. But his story is mentioned in Surah Kahf. And he promotes peace and justice uh, and Tawheed throughout the world, as is mentioned in that story, in that surah. Here, Sulaiman also promotes what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him. And he wants a kingdom that is like none other. So, his kingdom now will include so many other things as will be mentioned in the next ayah. Wahhab, indeed, you are the one, the only one, that is the one that grants all the time. You are the giving one, and you give without any measure. And you give without any, uh, what do you call it, fee. Meaning, Allah, his name, Al-Wahhab, is the one who gives as a gift, not one who gives as a result of another action. That is the word Wahhab. So, Suleiman uses the same word as Allah is using for him. Wahhabna li Suleiman. And he uses this in his dua 
to bring down the effects of Allah's glory, his might and power, so that uh, he may rule with Allah's justice and control uh, the resources of the world and the earth, which we will highlight, inshallah. So this is Sulaiman Salam's dua. So Allah granted him his wish and his request and his dua. فَسَخَّرْنَا لَهُ الرِّيحَ تَجْرِي بِأَمْرِهِ رُخَاءً حَيْثُ أَصَابٍ So the first thing we did in order to give him this kingdom that is like none other is that we subjugated for him the wind that it ran or it runs with his command. Sulaiman so was able to command the wind and the wind was at his service. This is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consolidated the authority of Sulaiman that not only did he have authority over people, he had authority over wind. So that is a huge uh, power and ni'mah. And it was always running smoothly. Uh, wherever he directed, uh, wherever he pointed, and wherever he instructed, so he would go smoothly, and he would be able to fly uh, himself with the wind, and fly in formation, as in as in another ayah which we did uh, in Surah Al-Namal with the birds, and also the jinn. So the birds will be in formation, the jinn will be in formation, people will be on the ground, on on their horses, and then everything would be subjugated to the command of Sulaiman al-Islam. This is total uh, control of the earth and the resource in the earth, so he controlled the animals. Dawud al-Islam controlled the mountains and the birds. Sulaiman al-Islam controlled the birds and the wind, and also the jinn, which is mentioned in the next ayah. So this was the kingdom Allah gave to Sulaiman. It is a magnificent kingdom uh, that uh, perhaps now uh, warrants us to look further into what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did for Sulaiman and where he went and traveled in the world and how he brought people towards Allah's worship and so on. And we also subjugated for him the devils. Yeah. Anyone who, were, uh, who was a builder and anyone who was a diver. So builders from the devils mean the jinn and also the jinns who were diving to bring pearls and everything else from the sea, from the ocean bed, for, uh, for Sulaiman and his kingdom. So Allah subjugated all of this to Sulaiman for a reason, and that was to bring people to the worship of Allah. So this happens sometimes in human history. So in human history, as I said, this has only happened three times. So over the span of thousands and thousands of years of human history, if you say this happened three times, relatively is not much. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, so the shayateen are the jinn that were used for labor, and they were chained, or some of them were chained. And there were others who were subjugated, and they were in fetters, in chains, and so on. So now, there were the rebellious jinn, who were in chains, and there were the obedient jinn that were not in chains, and Sulaiman subjugated all types of jinn under his control, and they would build for him, and they would engineer for him, and they would do everything for him in a very short span of time. 
This is the picture Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is depicting for us so that Allah shows that he is able to give power, authority and domination to those who remember him. Because the, the surah is about dhikr and this is people of dhikr who make dhikr and they remember Allah despite being uh, or submerged in power and authority. So Dawud didn't allow his authority to distract him from the dhikr of Allah. Sulaiman also did not allow his authority to distract him from the dhikr of Allah. And Sulaiman's kingdom was so huge and mighty and powerful that he should have been distracted, but he was never distracted from the ibadah of Allah, which we did in the previous surahs, uh, surah Fatir, we discussed how he was engaged in ibadah uh, in a glass enclosure where the jinn would be seeing him as if he is praying, but in fact his ruh had been taken out and it was only his body there that was in prayer, but they didn't know for a long time. So Suleiman, until he died, and even after he died, stand, stood in prayer. This is how you are when you are a ruler who remembers Allah. It's about the dhikr of Allah. It's not about the power and authority. The power is to demonstrate Allah has the ability to give human beings this authority and power throughout the earth. So that is the total manifestation of Allah's hibah, Allah's gift. Right? So Allah's gift has a total manifestation. And this is how it is manifested. So they would build everything for Suleiman. They would dive in the sea and bring oysters and pearls for Suleiman. And they would do things for the sake of running the kingdom and establishing the authority of Suleiman. So this is how we see Allah's favor on Suleiman and before him, Dawud. Allah then says to Suleiman, this is our gift to you. This is our gift, this is our giving. So take care of it, take it, enjoy it, or refrain from it. So you may refrain from it, or you may partake. If you partake, it is a gift, and if you don't partake, that's also fine. It doesn't matter. بِغَيْرِ hisab, Without any hisab and reckoning from us. Meaning we will not charge you for this. We won't charge you if you take on the gift that we are giving you. Since you make the dua, we have now responded to your dua. And we are going to offer this to you as a gift. And the gift, if you take it, there will be no accountability or hisab for it. This is how the Quran depicts that. However, having said that, since Suleiman Salam did take it, and ostensibly, in, uh, at least on the surface, he had a lot of wealth uh, and belongings. Okay, Allah, the Prophet Sallallahu said that he will be the last uh, Nabi to enter Jannah uh, because he will be worried about his hisab. Hmm. It does come with a price. Uh, it's not that free. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, obviously he'll be in Jannah, but he will come slightly later than the other prophets. Because he'll be doing all this. Can you imagine how much he owned? 
So this is the 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 the, uh, the might, the power, and the gift of Allah that when it comes down upon a human being who is remembering him, he may bestow upon any one individual human being power and authority, glory, might, power, to the extent that he controls everything. Everything. That will be a sign of his gift and his kingdom. And so on. And indeed for him there is with us a closeness. A station, a proximity, Zulfa, meaning Suleiman is very close to us. Just because he ruled with all of these uh, forms of ruling and the, these forms of power doesn't mean to say he was he was close to us because he made it his lifelong purpose to remember us. It was the dhikr that gave him his proximity to us, La Zulfa. That he's very, very close to us. So here the Quran is saying that if you know how to remember Allah and you're given some authority and power, you can still be close to Allah. But usually most people don't make the dhikr of Allah. They're consumed by whatever it is they do in the community, for the community. Uh, that's when they don't have power. <laughs> Imagine when they do have power, right? Uh, you have people in the in the Ummah today, consumed by social work, community work, this work and that work, and they don't do any dhikr. They don't even do their salat. You know, they say, this is the ibadah. Community work is the ibadah. So he says, Sulaiman is a role model for everybody who's engaged in the world. He says, I'm engaged in the world. I have all the world and more than that. And I don't miss my salat. I don't even want to miss my nafil dhikr. Never mind my fault salat. Even my nafil dhikr I don't want to miss. So this is the power of dhikr of Allah that uh, Muslims must appreciate that we are created to worship Allah. Worship means ibadah. Serving Allah through ibadah. A ritual form of worship. Not the other uh, forms of public service. They are rewarded. There is ajr in them. They are Islamic activities, no doubt, uh, inshallah, but they're not strictly ibadah. Ibadah is when you have private time with Allah. That's ibadah. When you can't afford private time with Allah, for Allah, you're not in dhikr. Mm. How much private time do you have? <laughs> I'm so busy, I'm working for the ummah. Right, so there are two stories. One is the story of Dawood where he wanted to engage in dhikr, and Allah made him do what? Do public service. He escaped uh, into his tower, into his mihrab, uh, wanting to do dhikr of Allah. So Allah sent these two people, they scaled the walls and they said, you're not doing dhikr, you're doing this. And there's then Sulaiman Islam, that uh, he wanted both the dhikr and public service, which Allah gave him. So he's a step above Dawood Anyway, these two stories tell us that the purpose of the revelation of the Qur'an is to encourage people to make the dhikr, recite the Qur'an, which is the dhikr, remember the Qur'an, remember Allah, which is dhikr, and so on. So here, he says, the وَإِنَّ لَهُ عِنْدَنَا لَزُلْفَ He has a very close proximity to us. وَحُسْنَ مَآبَ And also, 
the best of uh, returns, yeah? uh, place of return, that uh, best resort, if you want to say that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's going to come back to a much better place than what it is we've already given him in the world. So the role of a Nabi is to follow Allah's instructions and to follow Allah's lead. So Sulaiman followed Allah's lead and saw that Allah wanted the world to be controlled by a person of God so that this person of God will control not just people and weapons and have brute military strength, but Allah wanted to show people that there are other phenomenon that a human being may control. That phenomenon being the wind. Uh, nobody controls the hurricane, right? Sulaiman would have. He would have told the wind, hey, just stay here. Don't go anywhere. That's power. Uh, having nuclear heads, uh, that's not power, that's destruction. Rukhan. Uh, See the word Allah uses for the wind here. Rukhan, smooth, soft, layin, rukha. That Sulaiman was able to subjugate the wind so that the wind would not harm or hurt anyone. Rukha. This is the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives power to prophets. So prophets are never in the mode of destruction. Prophets are always in the mode of construction and benefiting people. This how they are. Why? Because they're engaged in dhikr. They want to be close to Allah. Since Allah creates and he does not want to punish or destroy people, he then assigns people who are like him and gives them a gift, which is a divine gift, and they promote his order so that they become close to him and other people become close to him. Also, through that order, this is the role of a prophet, that they follow Allah's lead and they follow Allah's instructions whether it is through power or whether it is through ibadah. Either way, so ibadah is also through the permission of Allah, the idhan of Allah, and the lead of Allah. It is not without that. So here you have both stories and so on. Anyway, so this is the story of Dawood and the story of his son, Suleiman, where they ruled the world and they controlled other elements and other forces. Dawood controlled uh, the iron in the world, and Sulaiman controlled the wind and the other forces that we can't see, the jinn. They're there, they exist, and they need to be controlled and subdued and subjugated. Yeah. In the story of the Prophet وسلم, where he captured a shaitan, a devil, a jinn, yeah, and then he tied the jinn. Mm one of the pillars of the masjid. He said that, I then remembered the dua of my brother Suleiman. This dua. Give me a kingdom that's not fitting for anyone after me. So I released the jinn, fearing that Suleiman's dua will be disturbed if I control the jinn. So you let the jinn go. Which is a higher adab. I mean, the Prophet was able to control the jinn even without tying the jinn up. 
the Prophet said that the devil resides within you, each one of you. And the Sahaba said, even in you, Ya Rasulullah, he said, even in me, except the jinn, shaitan in me, has submitted. He's accepted Islam. So he can only instruct me to do good things. That is power. Right? That's inside you. And you are so powerful with your dhikr and ibadah that even the devil, whose nature is to deceive you, has no business except to instruct you to do good. That's subjugation. The other physical subjugation is what the Prophet is referring to, that Suleiman asked for the physical subjugation of things around him and in the world. He was not asking for the spiritual subjugation. I have control over my jinn and my shaitan. He is underneath me. He can't do anything. So he is there. He's part of me. But he is a Muslim. So how do you now understand that? that the Prophet converted the devil. That is superpower. So when you compare the two, the Prophet will always be higher. Even in all the miracles that the Prophets perform, the Prophet's miracles will always be higher than the other Prophets because he is Khatam al-Nabiyyin. He is the seal of all Prophets and he is there to guide everybody. So the Prophet respected the physical nature of Suleiman's kingdom without compromising his own abilities. That is the adab that we find from all the prophets that he didn't want to undermine what his brother Suleiman asked for. And at the same time, he let them go. Okay, this is it. Not only that, the Sahaba were able to tie up jinns in the masjid. And the shayateen, Abu Huraira says, I was put in charge of the Baytul Mal. And one night I heard some noise in the Baytul Mal and I saw this thing. Uh, looked like a human being. And I tied him up. Uh, so the jinn said, he didn't know he was a jinn at that time, he said, I'll give you something in exchange for my release. Abu Huraira said, what is that? He said, you can read Ayatul Kursi every night and you'll be protected from the devil. So Abu Hurairah said, this is a good trade. I'll let you go. So in the morning, he told the Prophet he did this. He said, do you know who that was? He said, no, he said, that, that was shaitan. Yeah, he made a good deal with him. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that even the Sahaba had the ability to control these species and this form of Allah's creation, which they do exist. You can deny whatever you want to deny. That doesn't change reality. Denying reality doesn't change reality, right? Is the hurricane there? It is there. But I don't believe it. Who cares what you believe in? It's there. Is Allah there? Sure he's there. I don't believe it. Who cares whether you believe or not? It doesn't change the fact that Allah exists. Is the prophet a prophet? Yes. But I don't believe it. Who cares whether you believe or don't believe? That's your problem, not mine. You have a problem with it, you solve it. You resolve it. Why are you making your problem my problem? Right. So what I'm saying is that the Sahaba had the ability through the Prophet ﷺ to tie up shayateen 
and jinn, like the Prophet had the ability to tie up the jinn. But he let him go because of Sulaiman's dua. So basically, what the, the, the moral of the both stories of Dawood and Sulaiman is that they were awab. The Quran calls them awab, as you will see in the other stories of the other prophets. They're always coming back to Allah. So no matter what work they did, whether it was now state-related or whether it was now community or the society-related or whether it was legal or whether official or unofficial, they always came back to Allah as they were serving Him. This is the moral of the story, and Muslims must appreciate that the Qur'an's message in general is dhikr. The Qur'an calls itself dhikr, and the Qur'an calls itself a reminder so that people should not get lost in the world and forget that they have an akhirah. There's another world after this world. And if you prepare for that world, then you're in a good position, inshallah. And if you don't prepare for that world, then you can do what you want in this world. You may succeed, you may not. You may find glory, you may not. But you will not find anything in the other world because that comes only through Allah's fadl, Allah's grace and His mercy, which is what we are supposed to seek. Rasulullah Allah gives us tawfiq to do what pleases Him the most. Ameen, Ya Rabbul Alameen. Subhanallah, bihamdi, subhanakallah, bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nasdaqfiru kanatu malik. Subhanallah, rabbika, 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 rab